taking medication doesn't necessarily heal the underlying cause of why your thyroid isn't functioning well in the first place. And to really heal the body, we need to figure that out. Welcome back to the Mastering Your Fertility podcast. This show is all about reclaiming health, enhancing fertility, and preparing for pregnancy. We're Kristen Cornette and Dr. Haley Nye, your hosts and the creators of the online fertility platform, Tiny Feet. This episode is brought to you by our Tiny Feet Fertility Assessment, where you and your partner can receive a personalized online action plan to improve your health, boost your fertility, and prepare your bodies for a successful pregnancy. Get all the latest research-supported guidance on how to work with your doctor for preconception care, what to eat for optimal fertility and pregnancy nutrition, which nutrients to supplement with, and how to create a healthier internal and external environment for your future baby. And the best part is you get access to all of this in the comfort of your own home without having to spend endless hours researching and sifting through conflicting advice. Learn more about the assessment and get signed up for your plan at tinyfeet.co forward slash the dash assessment. If you're here for the first time, then welcome. We appreciate you listening and we're excited to be here with you, helping you learn more about how to improve your health and fertility. Dr. Haley and I started Tiny Feet in 2018 to offer couples a unique functional medicine approach for overcoming fertility struggles, conceiving successfully, and having beautiful, healthy babies. We offer individualized consults that include functional lab testing and targeted natural therapies, as well as our online fertility assessment and online courses. You can learn more about us and what we do on our website at tinyfeet.co. If you've been enjoying the podcast for a while, we'd love to hear from you about your experience through a rating or review on your favorite listening app. These really do help us boost the podcast and continue to share all of this life-changing fertility education with the couples who need it the most. Thanks in advance for all of your amazing feedback and support. You're listening to episode 39, where we're going to be teaching you everything you need to know about thyroid health while trying to conceive. As you may already know, screening for thyroid issues before and during pregnancy is not routine practice for conventional medical providers in the U.S., but we consider this one of the most important preconception tests a woman can receive, and we advocate for universal screening, especially because not all cases of low thyroid function cause obvious symptoms. So in this episode, you're going to learn what your thyroid does and why it's so important for fertility, pregnancy, and baby's development the symptoms and possible underlying causes of thyroid dysfunction, how to get the right testing and interpretation for your thyroid labs, available treatment options for low thyroid and how to choose the one that's best for you, and lastly, how to investigate and address the root cause of your thyroid issues so that you can actually heal your body instead of just manage your symptoms. Before we get started, we do want to update you on our brand new online preconception course that will be coming out at the end of the summer called Fertile in Five Masterclass. The course will take you through a complete five-step preconception and fertility optimization program, including what to discuss with your doctor and how to get the right lab tests before you conceive, including thyroid, a full nutrition and supplement protocol to help prepare your body to grow your baby, how to adjust your lifestyle to support your fertility and a healthy pregnancy, and practical steps to avoid harmful environmental exposures that can wreak havoc on your hormones and your baby's health. 
to get priority notification when the course is available, as well as access to special pricing and bonuses, go ahead and jump onto our email list by downloading our free quiz through the link in the podcast episode description. All right, everybody, let's go ahead and jump into the episode. Dr. Haley is going to start with sharing the basics about our thyroid function. All right. Thanks, Kristen. Okay. So our thyroid is a small butterfly, butterfly shaped gland in the neck over the Adam's apple area. So if you feel your neck and you can feel what should be your Adam's apple, if you had one as women, then you would just go down just a little bit and it's sitting right behind your trachea there. So you're actually not supposed to feel your thyroid. And if you do, that's a sign something might be wrong. So our thyroid is a gland that's part of the endocrine system, and it produces our thyroid hormones that regulate metabolic rate and our temperature, so whether we're hot or cold, our digestion, brain function, mood, bone density, and also muscle control. So it does quite a few things in the body for us, and the way that thyroid hormone is created or signaled, it actually comes from the hypothalamus. So I kind of think of the hypothalamus as like the mothership or the mother controller um, that decides really what's going to happen in the body. So it's the, it's the part of the brain that's sensing everything in the body and then will send out particular hormones to signal uh, more hormones to be created. So It starts there and it produces thyrotropin releasing hormone or TRH. This probably doesn't sound familiar because we don't ever test TRH on labs, but the TRH then goes to the pituitary in your brain, which will release thyroid stimulating hormone or TSH. Now TSH probably does sound familiar to you because that is the main hormone uh, that is being tested on labs even conventionally. And thyroid stimulating hormone will then stimulate your actual thyroid gland. Um, It will stimulate the thyroid peroxidase enzyme activity, which then uses iodine to make thyroid hormones. So the two thyroid hormones that's produced in the thyroid, or the two main ones, are tyroxine, which is T4, and that is going to contain four iodine molecules, um, and that uh, then is converted into T3. So T3 is our active thyroid hormone in the body. And it's converted from T4 to T3 by basically taking one of those four iodine molecules off. And that's why they're called T4 and T3, because of the iodine molecules. (laughs) So um, 94% of thyroid production hormone is T4. So that's, we really, your your body is so smart. It doesn't want to make active thyroid hormone or the T3 unless it needs it. So it has mechanisms where all over the body. So I'm going to talk about that in a minute where it actually converts that thyroid into T3 when it's actually needs it. Um, so only 7% or just a very low percentage is made, uh, in as T3 in the thyroid gland. 
So then T4 is transported around the body by thyroid bond binding pro proteins that are in your blood. So those are like the little buses that the thyroid um, T4 gets on that um, it makes sure that it can get from one place to the next in your bloodstream. And then when it makes it to the liver, a good portion of that is converted to T3 in the liver. So 60% of your thyroid hormone is converted in the liver. And this is going to be really important uh, to information to know um, based on when you're trying to heal your thyroid. And we'll talk about that later on in the episode. Now, 20% of your thyroid or the T4 is also converted into inactive or reverse T3. So if you've heard of reverse T3, all that means is that it's like a mirror image of the active form of T3, but it doesn't it doesn't signal the thyroid uh, receptors like active T3 does. So it actually does quite the opposite. It's like it's it's blocking those thyroid receptors. And so the point of reverse T3, as far as we know, conventionally or right at this particular time in research is that it helps um, slow down your metabolism and kind of signals your body to rest. And so your reverse T3 will go up in a time of being sick. So if you were to get it tested when you have the flu or a bad cold, then your reverse T3 would be much higher. And uh, then 20% of the T4 is going to be converted in the gut uh, to T3. And so that's also why it's so important to have a healthy liver and a healthy gut when you want a healthy thyroid, <laughs> because you need those enzymes to be active and working properly to convert the T4 to T3. And then now Kristen's gonna talk about thyroid dysfunction. So when things go wrong and potential causes of why that can happen. Yeah, thanks Dr. Haley. So obviously it's really important for us to have balanced amounts of thyroid hormone in the blood. So with the endocrine system, we know that we're very sensitive to hormone signaling. So too much or too little of any hormone in the endocrine system can definitely cause us some health problems and thyroid is definitely no exception. However, the vast majority of thyroid issues are too little thyroid hormone. Hyperthyroidism is much less common um, and is usually caused by like autoimmune disease like Graves disease. Um, so low thyroid function, which is particularly important to fertility and pregnancy, as well as baby's development can be caused, um, or triggered or even worsened by a number of different things. So the most common cause of hypothyroid or low thyroid function is the autoimmune condition, which is called Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And that's basically an immune system attack on the thyroid tissue. And it starts to cause tissue destruction, which can inflame the thyroid. And that is the most common cause of adult hypothyroidism in the U.S. Um, and women, I've seen estimates as high as like 80 to 90% of cases being Hashimoto's. Other more conservative estimates say like 50 to 60%. But I also think that there's a testing issue. So we don't necessarily know exactly how many cases of hypothyroid are caused by Hashimoto's. And we'll talk about why that is later when we talk about testing because we just don't test antibodies as often as we should. 
Yeah. So another common cause of hypothyroidism is pituitary dysfunction. So the brain is not communicating well. Um, that TSH signaling isn't happening the way that it should. Um, the thyroid isn't making enough hormone because the brain isn't signaling properly. Um, another thing that kind of goes hand in hand with that pituitary dysfunction is also adrenal stress. So we have our HPA axis or our hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. So when the adrenal glands are stressed or we're dealing with things like chronic stress, blood sugar dysregulation, um, even chronic infections like Epstein-Barr virus, Lyme disease, mold, things like that can really affect our adrenal function and that can then affect our thyroid function. Also, other sex hormone imbalances, so particularly elevated estrogen or elevated testosterone. So this is um, common in women who may have endometriosis. We may see elevated estrogen or women with PCOS. We may see elevated testosterone, and that can affect how our, our thyroid hormones communicate and signal and bind to receptors in the body. Um, another thing with the sex hormones is being on long-term birth control. So not only can birth control increase thyroid binding globulins, so basically we're binding up more of our three free thyroid hormone and making it more difficult for thyroid to reach the tissues that it needs to. Um, but birth control can also cause nutrient deficiencies for really key nutrients that we need for thyroid function like selenium and zinc. And then birth control can also be inflammatory, and that increases the risk for autoimmune diseases, one of which is Hashimoto's. And the next cause or trigger for thyroid dysfunction is gut dysfunction. So we already talked about, Dr. Haley mentioned that roughly 20% of our T4 is actually converted to T3 in our guts. And there are specific enzymes that are produced by healthy gut bacteria that help facilitate that conversion. So if our gut isn't healthy, then we can have trouble converting that thyroid hormone. And you know, 20% is a pretty significant chunk of what gets converted to active T3. So if your gut isn't pulling its weight, then you can experience some issues with thyroid function. Another reason that the gut is important is that your gut is sort of that gateway to developing autoimmune disease. So if your gut is leaky, we've talked about this in, I want to say it was episode 33 that we talked about food sensitivities. We've also gone over gut dysfunction and health extensively in episodes nine through 11 of the podcast. So if you guys have more questions about that, definitely check out those episodes. And we discuss kind of leaky gut, food sensitivities, how that can lead to autoimmunity extensively in those episodes. So leaky gut, basically allowing things into the bloodstream that don't belong there through um, exaggerated holes in the gut lining. Um, also having infections, things like parasites, yeast overgrowth, SIBO, um, those types of things can all cause damage to gut function and contribute to not enough healthy bacteria to help with that thyroid hormone conversion. Another thing is environmental toxins. And I feel like this is probably not discussed enough in the context of thyroid. We're going to talk about some specific things in our environment, some of which are really common that we're exposed to on a regular basis that can interfere with our thyroid function. And we'll give you some practical steps for how to avoid those a little bit later on. And then obviously iodine deficiency um, is, is common. And 
because our thyroid hormone is literally built out of iodine molecules, um, it's really important that we have enough um, coming in from our diet. And the American diet is fairly deficient in iodine. Um, a lot of that's going to be coming from like sea vegetables and seafood. And many people aren't eating those foods on a regular basis. Um, iodized salt is one place in the diet that we can get iodine. Um, it's maybe not the best choice for other reasons. And especially a lot of people who are focusing more on natural health are moving toward more natural salts. And so they're also not getting iodine um, from that iodized salt. And then other nutrient deficiencies, we talked about this a little bit when we discussed birth control, but zinc and selenium are common nutrient deficiencies as well as iron. Iron is also really important for the thyroid. So there could be a lot of different things going on. So it's not as simple <laughs> yeah. as it's not as simple as you just do a thyroid test and you've determined, you know, just based on TSH and T4 that your thyroid function is low and you just need replacement thyroid hormone and there's nothing else to look at or do. As right. you can see, the cause behind thyroid dysfunction could be complex. So you could have one of those things on the list that I just mentioned or you could have several going on. And so really healing your thyroid as opposed to just medicating it. Now we're not knocking medication and we'll talk about that later. Medication can be very important, especially for trying to conceive and while pregnant, but taking medication doesn't necessarily heal the underlying cause of why your thyroid isn't functioning well in the first place. And to really heal the body, we need to figure that out. So let's talk a little bit about why this is so important to fertility, pregnancy, and baby's health. So some of you may have heard us talk about thyroid before in different areas. We've addressed it multiple times on Instagram, but this is really important for all aspects of reproductive health. So from a fertility perspective, low thyroid is a common cause of infertility, and it, it can be a cause of infertility for a number of different reasons. So one is disrupting ovulation. So when your thyroid function is low and it's making changes to your metabolism, your body can sense that that's that maybe resources are scarce and this isn't a good time to be trying to conceive. Your body is intentionally hitting the brakes on your metabolism and your reproductive system responds to that as well. And it may respond to that by disrupting your ovulation. So you can have irregular cycles or just not be ovulating at all. Um, also, really light cycles are common with thyroid dysfunction. Um, so 15% of women with ovulatory infertility, now these are based on kind of more individual studies, um, but we've seen 15% of women with ovulatory infertility are hypothyroid. 25% of women with PCOS have been shown to have positive thyroid antibodies, which would be consistent with a Hashimoto's diagnosis. And we do see that commonly in clients to have both PCOS and hypothyroid. Um, low thyroid function can also cause problems with egg quality. So it can contribute to diminished ovarian reserve or premature ovarian failure. And 40% of women with premature ovarian failure, according to one study, um, were hypothyroid. So that's a pretty significant wow. number yeah, mm -hmm. of, of women experiencing ovarian dysfunction that are also low thyroid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then being hypothyroid can also contribute to other hormone imbalances because we know how intricate and connected the endocrine system is. So problems in one type of hormone can throw off others, which includes your sex hormones. Mm -hmm. Now, during pregnancy, um, thyroid hormone is so important because your baby is completely dependent on your production of thyroid hormone until 16 to 20 weeks of pregnancy. So everything that they're getting from a thyroid perspective is coming from you until pretty much halfway through your pregnancy. And then even after baby starts producing their own thyroid hormone, they still need yours to actually develop 
optimally. And one of the main concerns that we have about baby's development is neurodevelopment. And we'll talk a little bit more about what some of the risks are of low thyroid on neurodevelopment in just a second. So the main consequence that we're probably most worried about from a fertility perspective is recurrent miscarriage. So there's an increased risk of miscarriage when thyroid function is low, and that studies have actually shown that just an elevated TSH alone, with all other markers being normal, so a TSH that's greater than 2.5, or just positive antibodies alone, both of right. those can increase the risk for miscarriage. And then, of course, if you had an elevated TSH and positive antibodies, then the risk may be even higher. So that's kind of one of the main things that we're concerned about there. There have been um, studies on some other complications as well. There's not as robust evidence on these as there is on miscarriage, but we're talking about things like low birth weight, preterm birth, um, and also preeclampsia. And then for baby's health, we mentioned neurodevelopmental problems. And so things that have been studied are um, an association with low intelligence, delayed verbal development, impaired motor function or performance, even autism and ADHD can have a low thyroid component for mom during pregnancy. So definitely this is something that's super important for us to be paying attention to um, during preconception and pregnancy. Um, <laughs> the ACOG kind of disagrees at this point in terms of universal screening. Um, I think maybe some other countries are a little bit more on the ball in yeah. terms of screening for thyroid during preconception. Um, but the reason that we're talking about it is because a lot of women aren't getting the testing that they need. So right. um, we're going to kind of go into that just a little bit more now, but we're going to start with talking about symptoms of thyroid dysfunction, and Dr. Haley's going to cover that. Great. Thanks, Kristen. That was an awesome list um, that I'm sure have people thinking and potentially confused. <laughs> so we are going to clear things up too, um, trying to get you guys on track with what's the next step for you guys. So, but first let's talk about some thyroid uh, symptoms. And so some really common, so there's, there's quite a few, especially with Hashimoto's, which Krista mentioned is the most common. There's so many symptoms. Um, so it's really hard to pinpoint and that's why it's important to get testing. Uh, but uh, some of the most common ones are fatigue, uh, lack of motivation, and depression. Uh, you may also notice some weight gain, especially around the hips and buttocks area, and also some dry, itchy skin or dry, brittle hair, and constipation or other digestive issues such as bloating or just feeling like you know, things are slowing down there. You all, you may also feel sensitivity to cold or poor circulation in your hands and feet, or even some people explain like they feel cold down to their bones. Like they can't actually regulate their temperature, no matter how many blankets that they have on them. So that's a sign of, um, your thyroid isn't quite working well. And then some other, symptoms that could be happening too is loss of, uh, hair. So, um, th hair thinning or even like full on patches could come out alopecia and then, um, sense or, um, abnormal bleeding or spotting between periods. So your periods become irregular, like, uh, Kristen mentioned, it messes with your ovulation. So anything that messes with ovulation is going to mess with the, um, actual, your, your cycle. So when you're bleeding, you might have a shorter cycle or maybe it's much longer. 
Um, also, you may experience a slow wound healing, morning headaches that wear off throughout the day. So if you're waking up in the morning with a headache, that's kind of a sign. Low basal body temperature. So consistently below 97 degrees, uh, you can take your temperature first thing in the morning, either under your armpit or in your mouth, and, um, and get an idea if it's consistently low. Puffy eyes, puffy face in the morning when you're just like, oh, it's just because I woke up. Well, no, most people aren't supposed to be super puffy when they wake up. In fact, they're supposed to be feeling refreshed and, and look great, you know? And so this is definitely a symptom I've had that you guys might have heard in the past on the podcast um, before I quit dairy. Um, and then obviously I have Hashimoto's too. So I'd wake up in the morning and my face would be really puffy and it wasn't until I fixed all that that I realized how puffy it actually was. So it's a symptom that may be going um, uh, where you don't realize that's happening. Okay. And then kind of on a more advanced symptom too is loss of your outer third of your eyebrows. Uh, so realize your eyebrows are thinning as well. And then also having high triglycerides or LDL on your blood tests. So if you're on a statin, <laughs> You may also want to check your thyroid. Okay, so uh, hyperthyroid symptoms. So just a reminder, hypo means you're not making enough thyroid hormone. Hyper means that you're making too much and that your body is kind of on an overdrive because you're, you have too much thyroid hormone signaling everything in your body. So pretty much opposite symptoms that you would feel with hypothyroid. So you're going to feel more like heart palpitations or your heart racing. Also fast pulse, um, especially at rest, inward trembling or anxiety. You can also get headaches and, um, and, uh, feel uh, headaches in the morning too. That's actually a very similar symptom to hypothyroid and, um, and muscle weakness. And so you may feel like, oh, maybe I might have like more energy or just feel like this anxious energy I want to move, but your muscles feel weak. You might also have night sweats or sensitivity to heat and, uh, difficulty gaining weight. So rapid weight loss is a, is a sign of hyperthyroid excessive hunger and your periods can be irregular. And then also fast transit signs. So, um, fast transit time opposite of the constipation. So feeling the diarrhea or having to go to the bathroom as soon as you eat. So those are all symptoms of hyperthyroid. Now it's important to know that women with Hashimoto's often experience both. So the reason why is because your thyroid is inflamed and your immune system is actively attacking it. So there's times where it's, and also keep in mind, like it's an autoimmune condition. So autoimmune conditions always have flares. They go through, they go through cycles and especially depending on certain triggers in your life. So if you get stressed, you might go through a flare. So in that example, if you have hypothyroid and maybe stress is a trigger, it could trigger you into a hyperthyroid event because your immune system gets all uppity and it starts attacking your thyroid again. And then it starts dumping all this thyroid hormone into your bloodstream. And then you'll feel like the racing heart and the night sweats, and you'll be wondering what the heck is going on. And that's, that's usually what's, what's happening. Okay. So the other unfortunate thing, especially with preconception care and pregnancy is that many women don't have any symptoms at all. They could be literally walking around 
with a flaring Hashimoto's autoimmune condition and have no symptoms at all. And one of the reasons for that too is our adrenal glands also pick up the slack for the thyroid too. So you may be feeling normal because your adrenals are working overtime, but eventually it's gonna catch up to you. And then the reason why it's so important for preconception and fertility is that just because you don't feel any symptoms doesn't mean it's not going to affect your ability to conceive and then also your baby's health. So that's why we always recommend a full thyroid panel that I'm about to talk about here in a second, actually right now, <laughs> um, for uh, regardless if you have symptoms or not. And I don't care what your doctor says. This is what you should do. So listen <laughs> up. <laughs> so the testing is a full thyroid panel that includes a TSH or a thyroid stimulating hormone that's super easy to get. It's common. It's like the one test that they'll mm -hmm. absolutely do for you. Yeah. They'll be like, sure, we'll do a TSH. And then that's about it. That's all they do. Uh, so that's ideally around 1.8 to 2.5. Um, it can actually be a little bit on the lower end. That's okay. And I, I wouldn't really freak out too much to think that you have hyper thyroid if it's much lower than that. If it is on the lower end or out of range, meaning like it's below 0.3, I would just get it tested again. And, um, and then of course, that's another reason why to get the full thyroid panel so you can put the full picture together. Okay. So also your TSH should be absolutely at least 2.5 or lower. Really, we want it like under two, but 2.5 or lower. And then your free T4 uh, is so a lot of conventional doctors will test total T4, um, but we really like to see what free T4 is doing. And part of that reason is because of those binding globulins that Kristen was mentioning. If you have a lot of, so the, the total T4 is testing the T4 with the binding globulins, meaning if you have a ton of binding globulins and very low free T3, what's that, what that actually is floating around in your bloodstream, then that doesn't tell us anything. It doesn't give us any indication of like the correlation between your symptoms and um, what's, you know, what's actually going on. So that's why we test free T4 and we want to see that over one. And then your free T3 we want to see that over three. Okay. And if your free T4 is normal and your free T3 is low, then that's often an issue of your liver, your gut, and or your adrenals or all three. Okay. And then, then your free, your reverse T3 that I mentioned earlier in the episode, there's a ratio that should be less than 10 to one. Okay. So your reverse T3 to your free T3 ratio should be less than 10 to one. And then always, always, always test TPO antibodies and also TG antibodies, which are um, thyro, thyroglobulins <laughs> antibodies. So there's two different antibodies that we know of right now in the research that is attacking your thyroid gland. Um, TPO antibodies are the most common ones and usually is the one that you can get tested regularly. The TG antibodies are more newer on the block and um, may not be tested regularly, but I would just request that to be tested. If they don't have the ability to do that, it's okay just to get the TPO. I mean, that's going to give us the most information anyway. So 
That's it. And um, what we'll do is we'll put these in our show notes. So we'll have a list of what to test for. So you guys can not have to, <laughs> you don't have to try to find out on the episode. I'm like, wait, what did she say again? <laughs> so we'll have that written out for you. Now, there's a few issues when it comes to testing and interpretation. So I already mentioned a couple. Most doctors are only going to test for TSH and maybe T4. And again, they don't show a complete thyroid picture. Um, Kristen mentioned that you can have a normal TSH, but also have thyroid antibodies that are positive, and that can increase your risk for miscarriage. And so it's just really common or really important to know if you have thyroid antibodies because that means you have an autoimmune condition and it's something that you really need to take more seriously for sure. Um, also lab references can vary widely and are based on all the people tested for that particular lab. And <laughs> that's, that's why we created this like idea of functional medicine because we have optimal lab ranges instead of just the common now, you know, everybody's, uh, lab range, which is, quite large. And a lot of those people in those particular lab tests that were tested aren't healthy. They wouldn't so, be getting lab work if they were. <laughs> yeah. So we're making, we're making lab ranges based off of not the healthiest of populations. And so that's why we want a more ideal range where you really want to be right. You don't want, nobody wants to be average. We want to be ideal. We want to be optimal. <laughs> and, um, and then also many doctors aren't familiar with the latest research that indicates a TSH should, be a, uh, should not be above 2.5 um, when you're looking at miscarriage risk and infertility. Uh, they do know the research and it is common when you're actually pregnant, okay, but not when you're trying to get pregnant. So that's the big difference there. And then of course many or not very many doctors will test for antibodies because positive antibodies don't change the way that they practice. If your TSH is above a certain or above the range that they consider normal, uh, then they will give you medication and boom, that's it. That's all they care about. You know, like, here you go, here's your medication, you're better, bye. And so they don't really care to know if you have a thyroid autoimmune condition. And part of that reason too is they don't really have no any treatments for it. They don't know what to do for you. So why even test for it in the first place? Okay. All right. And so as far as medication that they're going to give you is levothyroxine, which is a synthetic T4 hormone. So it's only T4. It's bioidentical to the hormone in your body. So it is a safe medication and it is the safest for fertility miscarriage prevention and correcting your hypothyroidism during pregnancy. So we do advocate for synthetic T4. In fact, levothyroxine is the medication I'm on. And that's the medication that I was, I was put on before I got pregnant with my girl. So I'm an advocate for it. And, um, it, but it's not the answer for everybody. It's, but it's a good start. The other source of thyroid medication that you could be given is desiccated thyroid gland from pork or beef source. That's and what I'm on. Yes. But I'm also not actively trying to conceive. So there's yeah. that. Perfect. Exactly. So that's a good example. Now, the porcine or the bovine source of desiccated thyroid hormone contains natural T4 and T3. So both. So that's one of the reasons why it works for people, especially if they're not converting their T4 to T3. Okay. Liver, gut, 
adrenals. <laughs> that is, that's something where you may need some T3, like you're actually taking T3. Okay. Now this might again, work well for people that aren't converting. And then, um, there are concerns with this particular medication when you are trying to conceive because there's just not enough research on it. That's it. We don't, there's no negative research on it, but there is no positive research. On, there's just no research on it. And because of that, we just want to be really careful and go with what we know and what works and what has evidence behind it. And that's it. That's, that's my, that's my spiel about medication. So I think what we're going to transition to now is talking about figuring out how do you figure out like what the underlying cause is of your thyroid dysfunction. So I talked earlier about this big yeah. list of things that can contribute to thyroid issues. How do you know if one of those things is the root cause for you? Is it this thing? Is it this thing? Is it this thing? So we're going to talk a little bit about some of like the additional testing and then some um, kind of remediation strategies. Like how do we actually heal? the underlying cause. Um, now, of course, like we said, we advocate for you addressing that immediate need for thyroid hormone support. So doing that either through um, starting with the synthetic T4, so the levothyroxine, and if it doesn't work for you, um, making sure that you're working with someone that can troubleshoot that case with you and find a safe alternative to just taking synthetic T4. So desiccated is one option. There are some other ways to support the thyroid as well. We'll talk about some of those natural options, but for sure, like if you're actively trying to conceive or you're pregnant and your thyroid hormone is low, you need to be addressing that immediate need for thyroid hormone to make sure that both you and your baby are supported properly during pregnancy and that your cycle is fully supported before you conceive. Um, so that said, just don't stop there. You know, don't stop just at medication, mm -hmm. figure out what the underlying cause might be. So let's talk about some of those things. So one of the first things to look at is nutrient status. So nutrient deficiencies, like we talked about with iodine, iron, selenium, and zinc, those can all cause or worsen a low thyroid situation. So having your ferritin tested, um, you can also do serum tests for iodine, selenium, and zinc. And then if there's a Hashimoto situation going on, so if you're showing positive antibodies, absolutely making sure that your vitamin D is tested because vitamin mm -hmm. D, low vitamin D is very common in autoimmune diagnoses. And vitamin D is a regulatory nutrient um, for the immune system. So when you have an autoimmune condition, your immune system is kind of like overactive. It doesn't know when to shut inflammation off. And vitamin D actually helps with that regulatory aspect. And it's very commonly low um, in patients who are autoimmune. Yeah, I was just um, thinking about PCOS too and how 25% of them have Hashimoto's. Well, isn't it like 40% or 44 more? 44%, I think. 44%. Yeah, are, are severely, like severely deficient in yeah. vitamin D, like not just a little bit, but quite a bit. So, mm -hmm. um, and that's compared to like only 11% of healthy women. So PCOS, there can be an immune component and an inflammatory component there. Um, and it's, it's an important nutrient for a lot of things, especially um, insulin, resistance and blood sugar regulation, um, that's a common problem for PCOS in addition to inflammation. So, and that's an easy, that's another simple, easy test. Um, sometimes doctors are resistant to doing it though. If they are, if your doctor really just refuses to test your vitamin D, I think that it's probably time to look for a new provider. There's enough evidence that shows that that's important, even just 
for women who don't have any thyroid issues, I mean, vitamin D is super important to your baby's health um, and to your fertility and to your pregnancy health. There's a ton of pregnancy complications and neurodevelopment things for baby. So definitely get that yeah. vitamin D tested. We're a big and, vitamin D fan. Yeah. We're, we're actually, I think we're going to have, uh, we're going to try to get Lily Nichols back on to give us talk a vitamin whole, D. Yeah. A whole episode on vitamin D. So stay tuned. Um, yeah. I also wanted to mention, I've noticed that some insurance uh, companies are not covering vitamin D, which is so infuriating. So <laughs> if, and it is kind of an expensive test. So I think the easiest thing to do is to get a direct lab and just pay for it out of pocket. Like it's even like 60 bucks, I think. Mm-hmm. I think you can even get it cheaper than that. Maybe even 40 bucks, but basically that, that helps you know what your cost is up front and not get a big surprise bill. My, so just recently, that's why it's on my mind is that I had a patient who her insurance denied the vitamin D that I tested for her and quest, which is the lab charged $247 for it. Oh my gosh. To the insurance company, to the insurance company. So that was, but because they denied it, that was going to be then transferred to the patient. And I was like, ah, my gosh, that's, that's like, five times more expensive than it should be. And so, um, that can happen, you know, so you don't want to get stuck with a surprise bill. So sometimes you can just, again, direct access testing up front. Yeah, totally worth it. Yeah. I I think like direct labs in the U S does it for 60 bucks. Now that's not applicable to all States. There are a couple States that don't allow direct access testing. And in that case, you know, um, go ahead and read Lily Nichols book and bring them some of the scientific study references for why it's important to have that test done. And oh, then... I have a, I have a, I have a tip. Yeah. So if you have osteoporosis that runs in your family, which I would say 99% of women do. Okay. I definitely do. I know Kristen's does. like, come on, everybody does. So if you tell your doctor that, that there is an ICD 10 code, which is basically what they need to justify running a test um, that is family history of osteoporosis. And that usually will justify and cover a vitamin D test. So there you go. That is an awesome tip. Yeah. Because vitamin D that's like probably the longest running thing that we know that vitamin D is important for is calcium metabolism and bone health. Right. And so that's been in the research forever. Like we've known forever that vitamin D deficiency causes rickets, especially in young children, if they're severely severely deficient, causes these like bowed legs and kind of misshapen bones. So yeah, osteoporosis, family history. I definitely have that. We all have that. I mean, women, women over a certain age, like especially who are menopausal, that's a really common diagnosis, like Mm -hmm. osteopenia, osteopenia, Mm -hmm. osteoporosis. It's like a kind of a fine line there. So totally good tip. So Nutrient status, super important. Increasing dietary intake of the first four nutrients that we talked about. Vitamin D, you don't really get a whole lot of that from food. Um, So getting it from the sunlight is an option. Safe sun exposure, um, not overdoing it without sunscreen because you don't make vitamin D when you're wearing sunscreen, but making sure um, that you're consuming iron-rich foods, iodine in your diet, um, selenium, and zinc seafood (laughs) has Mm -hmm. all of those things. Um, so it's a great, great dietary source. I do want to mention being careful with iodine supplementation. So the small amounts like 150 to maybe 250 micrograms that are typically included in a good prenatal, that's probably fine. But if you do have a positive Hashimoto's diagnosis, supplementing with higher doses of iodine, like in a separate supplement, it can be dangerous. It can actually stimulate a flare of Hashimoto's. So it stimulates production of TPO, 
which also increases antibody production. So if you're increasing your TPO and you have positive TPO antibodies, then you're also going to have like increase the amount of um, immune attacking that's happening on that TPO. So just being careful with iodine, I would say food sources, and then making sure that you have at least a small amount in your prenatal, but not going overboard with separate supplementation. Yeah. I think that that would be a question that listeners have is like, well, what about the iodine in my prenatal? Yeah. It's just so little, it's not very much at all. And I think most of us, well, I don't know, this is an assumption, I guess in the Northwest is like a lot of us have switched to Himalayan sea salt and like non-iodized table salt. Right. Right. And so that's another reason if, if you are using just sea salt on your food, like at home, uh, then you're not getting the iodine every day. And so the little amount that is in your prenatal is perfectly fine. Both Kristen and I take a prenatal that has a little bit of iodine in it and we both have Hashimoto's. So, um, that's perfectly fine, but you don't, again, exactly what Kristen said, want to supplement with some type of thyroid, natural thyroid boosting herb or supplement or something that has a bunch of iodine in it. So you want to be careful of that. Yeah. Stick to the the smaller microgram doses. Anything in milligrams is probably not a good idea if you have positive antibodies. (laughs) Well, that's the issue with not testing antibodies is that people will read like, oh, it could be iodine deficiency. So they start taking it and they haven't been tested for Hashimoto's and things get way worse and their thyroid goes completely out of whack. Um, So with iron supplementation, most prenatals that we recommend do have some iron. However, probably the two that we recommend most often don't have iron. Um, So if you're uh, supplementing separately with iodine due to a low ferritin level um, and you're not improving, that's when you You need to start looking at- Sorry, I think you said iodine. Sorry, I meant iron. Yes, I meant iron. So if you're supplementing with iron and you're not improving, that is a sign that you have something going on in your gut. So it's not necessarily that you're not getting enough iron. It may be that you're not absorbing enough iron. And we'll talk about gut health here in just a couple of minutes. So the next thing that you may want to investigate a little bit further when it comes to root cause of thyroid issues is blood sugar regulation. This is a really common cause of like that pituitary or HPA axis dysfunction, like adrenal stress is poor blood sugar regulation. So that could look like you know, reactive hypoglycemia where, you know, you're eating and a few hours later you're crashing and having super low blood sugar symptoms. Um, we have talked about, was it episode five that we did on the podcast that was like all about blood sugar? Gives five or six, somewhere in that <laughs> realm, five or six. Uh, we talked extensively about blood sugar and how to address that kind of yes. dietarily, but some labs that can be really helpful to sort of investigate whether or not blood sugar issues or insulin resistance might be an issue for you is a fasting glucose. Most doctors will do that as part of like a typical metabolic panel. Um, they don't usually test fasting insulin. So that's another good one to have tested. Your A1C, which is kind of an average blood sugar level over the past three months. Ideally, that number is going to be like 5.7, more like 5.3, I would say is good. Anything above that. Um, well, in our course, we teach you about this in the course. We do. Yep. And uh, it's 5.4 or less okay. is ideal. Yep. And then the, the HOMA IR calculation, which is uses the fasting glucose and fasting insulin level to calculate that. And we want that to be less than one. Right. And then you can go off of symptoms as well. So we talk about blood sugar symptoms, like I mentioned in that podcast episode, that's all about blood sugar regulation. Um, and so 
all of that can pretty much be regulated with dietary changes. Now there are some supplements and things that can be helpful with blood sugar regulation. Our recommendation is just to be working with somebody who's experienced in helping clients manage that well. So next up would be looking a little bit deeper at that HPA axis and doing like a functional hormone test, such as a Dutch test, um, which we do offer in our practice and finding out whether or not cortisol is too low or too high, as well as figuring out whether or not there may be some imbalances in sex hormones. So we talked about elevated estrogen and elevated testosterone, both having an impact on thyroid function and then cortisol um, or low progesterone can also have an impact on thyroid function. And the great thing about Dutch is that it gives you kind of what all of those hormones look like. And although it doesn't test directly for thyroid hormones, you can identify certain patterns in a Dutch test that can help show what that thyroid dysfunction might be. It can kind of hint at what's going on with your thyroid. And then also give you more information about what your other hormones are doing so you know kind of what might need to be done. So that could be as simple as like stress reduction, getting that cortisol down, re-regulating your circadian rhythm. So making sure that you kind of have healthy, um, higher cortisol levels in the morning that taper off throughout the day. That's kind of what we consider a normal cortisol curve. And then balancing out estrogen and testosterone with natural therapies and also boosting progesterone. So when it comes to a Dutch test, a lot of times when we see irregularities on a Dutch test or other testing, we then go to the gut for underlying cause. So the next thing that we want to mention is a GI MAP stool test and or an MRT food sensitivity test. Now we do both of these in our practice as well, and our preference is to do them together. And I would say that this is most needed in cases of already identified Hashimoto's. So if you've had a thyroid test, you've identified that you have positive antibodies, I would definitely wanna be looking at the gut because gut is so important to autoimmune disease. So identifying whether or not there's any underlying infections in the gut, overgrowth of parasites, bacteria, yeast, um, viruses, anything like that, low levels of beneficial bacteria, which can affect the integrity of the gut lining, and then also affect conversion of thyroid hormone from T4 to T3. Or GI map can also identify like poor digestive function. So are you producing enough stomach acid and digestive enzymes? Is your liver and gallbladder working well? We can get some indications on those things from a GI map test. And that can sort of show us maybe where that immune activation or the root cause of that autoimmunity is coming from in the gut. And then we can figure out what a good protocol is to address that for you when we have all of this information about what's really going on in your gut. And then an MRT food sensitivity test can help identify like food triggers that can contribute to inflammation. So that can stimulate the immune system, also contribute to leaky gut and just cause systemic body inflammation. And so we'll use these two tests together to create a healing protocol that addresses both the dietary issues as well as the gut imbalances. And that can move somebody um, totally in the right direction with a Hashimoto's diagnosis be really helpful for figuring out and addressing the root cause. So diet is kind of the next thing. So food sensitivity testing is great, but it's also kind of not the end all. It can't tell us everything about what can be helpful with diet. And there actually is some research, um, several studies, as well as a ton of clinical experience from many different types of practitioners that show that people with Hashimoto's tend to do much better on a gluten-free diet. 
And some of that may be because there's a similarity in structure between gluten or gliadin um, and thyroid proteins. And so when you have leaky gut and some of that undigested gliadin or gluten protein is making it through the gut lining and into the bloodstream, it's kind of a case of mistaken identity where the immune system identifies those proteins as foreign, but they look really similar to your thyroid proteins. And so while the immune system's attacking those food proteins, it's also attacking your thyroid proteins and destroying that tissue. And we also know from um, our episode on food sensitivities, we talked extensively about gluten and why gluten-free is important in cases of autoimmunity, but it can increase intestinal permeability, which is a prerequisite for the development of autoimmune conditions. Another thing to note is that it's super common to see both celiac and Hashimoto's together in the same person. So the, they have a high rate of co-occurrence with one another. So next would be talking about dairy. So a dairy-free diet, there's not as much research on this. Um, I don't really know that I've read any research on this, but clinically it's been seen to be really helpful along with a gluten-free diet. So like gluten-free, dairy-free, if you're going to try an elimination to improve your thyroid health, that would be the first two things that you would consider eliminating probably along with refined sugar. So three things, gluten, dairy, <laughs> and sugar are like the first three things to go. If somebody's not ready to do a full elimination protocol, which we talk about in episode 33 of the podcast, and I'm also going to cover that here very briefly, but if somebody's not ready to do a full elimination protocol, just cutting those three things and seeing whether or not your symptoms improve can be really helpful. And mm -hmm. gluten and dairy commonly cross-react in the body. And that's probably one of the reasons why going dairy-free, although there's less research on it, has still been shown to be clinically really helpful. And then the next option would be doing a full elimination diet. So this is not just eliminating gluten, dairy, and sugar, but actually going through an elimination protocol that systematically it takes out foods that are known to cause issues with the gut lining or potentially be inflammatory for people. So that could be things like um, all grains, whether they contain gluten or not, um, legumes, alcohol. So a Whole30 diet is kind of our baseline elimination. And that's sort of a paleo style diet. Um, what we'll often use for clients who are showing more immune reactivity or um, have a definitive diagnosis of Hashimoto's, we will often also use the autoimmune protocol. And it is more strict, um, so we don't always start people here, especially if they're just not quite ready for that strict of an elimination. But that's going to be all grains, legumes, dairy, alcohol, um, nuts and seeds, nut and seed-based spices, coffee, all artificial sweeteners, it, eggs. Um, so it's a heftier protocol, but it also actually has new clinical evidence showing if it's effectiveness for Hashimoto's. So the um, autoimmune paleo community has actually, they self-funded a research study about the effectiveness of AIP for Hashis, and they actually found some really pretty incredible results in that study. So it wasn't very many people. I want to say there were like 17 people in the study. So like I said, it was very small, um, but they noticed dramatic decrease in symptom burden, um, also improvements in sleep and ability to exercise. Half of the participants were actually able to reduce the amount of medication that they were taking for thyroid, just being on AIP. Um, a third of participants had lower blood markers of inflammation, which I believe they measured through C-reactive protein, and many improved their nutritional status. 
So just doing nutrient testing, they were able to see a big bump in, um, in nutritional status for these participants in this study. And so the focus of AIP isn't just eliminating potentially offending foods, it's also adding in super nutrient dense foods. So if you're interested in doing that protocol, don't just focus on the eliminations, definitely focus on what you're also adding to your diet. And um, in the show notes for the episode on our website, we will link to the resources both for Whole30 and AIP, where you can find tons of different recipes, kind of what the quote rules are for the program, and how you can maybe start implementing some of these things in a more practical way for you. And the last thing that we want to talk about in terms of just kind of figuring out root cause and also making some helpful changes to support your thyroid is environmental toxins. So there are quite a few different chemicals that are very common in products that we use every day that do have the ability to disrupt our thyroid hormone. And so the first one of these that we want to talk about is plastics. And this is actually, it's good to be talking about this because two weeks ago, we were just on the podcast interviewing Laura Adler, who is an environmental mm -hmm. toxins expert here in Portland. So we talked about a lot of these things two episodes ago, which I believe was 37 of the podcast. So definitely check that episode out if you want a little bit more information on practical steps to eliminate or reduce your exposure to some of these things. But for plastics, a lot of those things are going to be found in your kitchen. So switching to like glass, silicone, or stainless steel food storage containers, choosing a non-plastic reusable water bottle like glass or stainless steel, um, avoiding plastic takeout food and beverage containers. So something that probably everybody does without even thinking about it is coffee lids, like takeout coffee lids mm -hmm. or, you know, soup containers from from your favorite takeout place, like just trying to limit plastic as much as you can from those things. Personal care products is another one. Parabens actually have specific evidence for thyroid disruption, but we would definitely want to remove as many overall endocrine disruptors as possible. So parabens, phthalates, and synthetic fragrance are kind of the big three. And once again, in episode 37, we have some really practical resources for where you can investigate and find safer products for you. Pesticides is another one. There is specific evidence for thyroid disruption with pesticide exposure and eating organic is the simplest step to uh, reduce that exposure. If you can't afford to eat everything organic, check out the environmental work uh, environmental working groups list for the dirty dozen and clean 15. So dirty dozen produce items are going to have the most pesticide residue. So either buy those organic or avoid them. And then the clean 15, those are ones that have the least amount of pesticide and are much safer to buy conventional. And animal products are another source of kind of some of the pesticides and other toxic exposures. So as much as you can purchasing animal products that eat a biologically appropriate diet. So cows that eat grass instead of grain um, is a good way to reduce exposure to toxins as well as to just get a better nutritional profile from your animal products. Well, Another also buying local is a big way to avoid those because less mm -hmm. transit time and less big, big lot feeds and things like that. Yeah. Um, your local farmer just around the corner is probably going to have a less toxic exposure type of farm than, um, than big ones. Definitely true. And not everybody has access to local farms. Um, so right. if you're somewhere in the U S where you don't have great farmers markets, like Dr. Haley and I do here in Portland, there are some online resources for both animal products and, um, 
um, like seafood and things that you can find um, sometimes a little bit more on the expensive side, but you can kind of get around that by purchasing some of the less expensive cuts, which also tend to be more nutrient dense. So um, since we mentioned that as a resource, we'll also link to that for you guys in the show notes for the episode. And one other thing, two other things actually that I want to talk about that most people probably don't think of. One of them is drinking water. And uh, we have this horrible trend in the United States of fluoridating our water. Um, and the unfortunate thing about both fluoride and disinfectants like chlorine is that they actually have the ability to displace iodine from your thyroid hormone. And so the thyroid can take up things like fluoride and chloride and use those or chlorine and use those in thyroid hormone production. So it looks like you have an active usable thyroid hormone, but you actually don't. So filtering your drinking water is the best way around that. And how you do that really depends on what your setup is, what your needs are um, for drinking water, but just at least finding a filter that can uh, filter out chlorine and then also byproducts of disinfectant like chloramines and something called trihalomethanes. You'll probably just see that on the water filter. You don't need to necessarily remember that, but, um, and then also looking for something that filters out fluoride. So at least those two things. Um, would be really mm -hmm. helpful. Most carbon-based filters will be good for removing the chlorine, chloramines, and trihalomethanes. You may need to find something like another attachment. Like I use a Berkey filter and mm -hmm. their carbon filters don't filter out fluoride, but they have attachments to those filters that do filter out fluoride. Thankfully, our water here is not fluoridated, so I'm lucky. Yeah. But um, if you're not sure, you Most should be able to contact your municipal do, water yeah. supplier and they can tell you whether or not there's fluoride in your water. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing, we just posted about this on Instagram recently. Dr. Haley watched a documentary that I referred her to and had like a major <laughs> freakout moment. Awful. Yeah, it is pretty awful. Um, and unfortunately, this is something that we really value highly for its convenience in our kitchens, and that's nonstick cookware. But um, the documentary that we're talking about is called The Devil We Know, and it's available on Netflix for free. Um, and it is not for the faint of heart. It is scary, but it does give you a lot of important information about why nonstick chemicals are just simply not safe. They are absolutely not safe. I honestly can't even believe, given all of the scandal about these chemicals, that they're even still allowed to be used in production of consumer products. Well, and I wanted to make sure to be clear too, is like, I don't think it's as much, if we were going to, I guess, compare the impact on you just using your nonstick pan to the impact of actually manufacturing this nonstick material, uh, Teflon, um, or whatever they're making now, Gen X, whatever. A new chemical with less research, but uh, they like exactly the yeah. same function. But I guess uh, what I'm trying to say is that is really hurting our earth and our water and our, and the animals around that, um, industrial plant. And like, it's just, it's so bad for our environment. So not only is, is it like, Oh, it's bad for you. Like, you know, like it could be hurting your health. It's bad for our environment. So just to yeah. just be a, a proactive consumer and say no to that can help thousands and thousands of people down the line by just protecting our environment. So it's the choices that we make by what we're purchasing and using in our homes that's going to make a vote for our, our you know, having a safer environment for our children. Completely true. And these chemicals, these nonstick chemicals, PFCs, PFOAs, these are 
so persistent. Like they don't, they don't break down in the environment. Not only that, they don't really break down very well in your body. It can take years and years and years to detoxify. So you using your nonstick cookware today, that those chemicals could be in your body four or five years from now still. And so knowing that and knowing that there's not only an impact on thyroid function, but also evidence that it affects baby's development and risk of complications during pregnancy, it's just not worth it. Um, a really well-seasoned cast iron pan that you take really super good care of is just as good of a nonstick surface yeah. and it's super safe. So cast iron, enamel cast iron, ceramic, and stainless steel are all of our go-tos. Some of those pieces might be a little bit more expensive than others. Stainless steel is probably going to be, stainless steel and regular cast iron might be some of the least expensive options. Um, I got some fairly reasonably priced ceramic cookware um, using different pieces for different things can be really helpful. So like I have um, pieces from Extrema cookware. Those are my ceramic ones. Um, I forget... I forget the brand of stainless steel cookware that we've got, but I'll look it up and I'll put it in the show notes. And um, we have like La Crusade is our enameled cast iron. And so we oh, just yeah. have different, yeah. And then an instant pot, which has a stainless steel insert, which is great. Um, and so those are like kind of all the cooking tools that you need. I mean, you don't necessarily have to go out and buy like a whole new set of pots and pans for hundreds of dollars. Like just replace yeah. one piece at a time, like take the nonstick cookware piece that you use most often and just make a different choice for that piece. And then just mm -hmm. do one at a time, make it super approachable. And once again, we talk all about being approachable and stress-free about toxin elimination in episode 37. That's so right. I think that's all I wanted to cover for kind of additional testing and investigation. Dr. Haley, anything else you want to add before we wrap things up for this week? Uh, I think the one thing I just want to add uh, at the end of all this is that I think it's important to know that if you get diagnosed with a Hashimoto's diagnosis and an, or, an, or any autoimmune condition, really, is that there are so many things that you can do about it. And that, you know, if your doctor is saying, no, you're just going to have this for the rest of your life, like, that's not true. I mean, well, I guess you you will have the potential for it to flare the rest of your life. But there are so many things that you can do to get back to your healthy self, get back to just feeling like you're, you know, you're living life again and that you're not suffering from any of these conditions just by doing some of the things that we talked about. And for some people, you have to do more than others, you know, to be able to get the full effect. But, um, but it's possible. And then the last thing I would like to say is that it's important to really kind of figure out what that trigger is. And if you are having a hard time figuring out what that trigger is, just keep digging. You know, it will, it will dawn on you at some point, like, Oh, it's this, you know, and it might be like, Oh, I moved into a new home or I'm, 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 I get a flare every time I go visit my mom or, you know, there's lots of like emotional triggers and I think, um, it can be very, uh, it can like hide from us. Like you, you, it's hard to really know what it is, but to just not give up on that and just keep trying because, um, there's, there's always some trigger of why your immune system is, is freaking out because our body is fighting for us. It loves us. It, it wants to work. It wants to be in homeostasis, which means balance. Okay. It wants to be, um, well, 
Okay. So your, your body is not fighting against you. It's fighting for you. <laughs> and so just helping figure with, with your body, helping figure out what is it, what, what is it and how can I get to that root cause? I love that. That's a super important thing to remember is sometimes our chronic symptoms are actually our body trying to protect us. And, mm -hmm. you know, we think of, we think of autoimmune disease in particular as like fighting a war with our bodies, but really it's an mm -hmm. opportunity for us to take better care of ourselves. And it's our body trying to tell us that something's wrong and, and protect us from the assaults that it's perceiving from something that that's triggering that. And so I completely agree. You know, I think looking, looking for that trigger is a lot of that is finding the right people to work with is, is finding a practitioner that's willing to not give up on you and not give up on your symptoms, not just hand you a pill and send you on your way. It's finding somebody that's willing to keep digging with you as long as you're willing to keep digging. So for sure. Awesome advice. I love that. All right, guys, we are going to go ahead and wrap things up for this week. Thanks for sticking with us. We hope that you learned something amazing about your thyroid and um, how to test for it, what to do about it, how to investigate the underlying cause and start working toward fixing that. So we are excited to share this information with you. And if you have any questions, please go ahead and reach out to us. You can reach us on social media at tinyfeet.co. Um, you can also email us directly if you have a more personal question. And of course, check out our website and options for working with us. If you're curious about any of this or you want some additional investigation into your thyroid or other functional lab testing, you can find what we offer on our website at tinyfeet.co under the work with us tab. We'll see you next week. All right. Bye.